If you, um, if you missed last week or if you're joining us for the first time, we're doing something a little bit different, a little bit different for me uh, for sure and maybe for many of you too. We're looking at the movies as a way to engage those around us about God. And that's a little bit different, I think, for many of us, me included. Our culture is fascinated with movies, maybe you've noticed. I mean, people point to the movies and talk about movies all the time, and it's not hard to guess why. I think part of the reason is, as we talked about last week, everyone loves a good story. And we go to the movies, and part of the entertainment of it all is we get to live vicariously in the story. What would I do if faced with a similar circumstance? Or how does that make me feel? Or what do I think about that? And so on. And so one reason, if not the reason, I'm spending a few weeks in church talking about movies is because everybody is already talking about movies, both in and out of the church. And movies are a powerful medium, a powerful force in our culture. So it seems to me Christians should take note, and Christians should be talking about movies as well from a Christian worldview or perspective. We should be entering into that already dedicated discussion and attention that holds the world, especially our culture. Most of you, I'm sure, remember King David in the Bible. Well, before he was king, David had a lot of adventures. And one of the most bizarre adventures he had was to actually rub friendly elbows with Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, for a time. You remember? He gained even the trust of the Philistine king. Well, fascinating thing. One reason history tells us the Philistines were the dominant culture over Israel for a time was because the Philistines knew the secret of iron, and Israel did not. And then suddenly, almost overnight... Right when David became king, Israel became the dominant culture and the Philistines faded away. And here's the fascinating part. The archaeological record tells us that it just so happens that right around the time David became king and Israel started dominating the Philistines, Israel suddenly discovered the secret of making iron. Abruptly, history says, as if overnight. Well, now, isn't that interesting? How do you suppose Israel suddenly discovered overnight the secret of iron right at the time David became king? David, who had been chumming around with the Philistine king. Many scholars will suggest David learned the secret of iron while enjoying the trust of the Philistines, and then he brought that secret that iron of culture, back with him for Israel when he became king. And here's the point of that little history lesson this morning. Here's the faith lesson and the history lesson. If there's something of power in a culture, at least something like iron that is good and useful and has everyone's attention, and people are fascinated with it, then like David, why not see if we can use it for God? Whatever the iron of culture is for a particular worldview, why not use it to the extent we can to point people to God? And as we talked about last week, perhaps first and foremost, we need better Christian films. Maybe something a little less cheesy and a little more real about pain and brokenness, many feel. And 
something a little less health and wealth so-called gospel, and something with better production value. When we make subgrade films, we're not using the iron of culture of movies done with excellence. But in addition to better Christian films, we can also piggyback on even secular films to help explain or show what God is or isn't like. Good things happen in secular films, and God is the author of everything good. And even when not-so-good things happen in films, the bad is nevertheless an opportunity to further define God or truth or both by contrast. And while people are fixated on movies, there's an opportunity for us to join in, to say yes when something good shows up. And that's God's responsible for that, did you know? Or say no when something bad shows up. They've got it completely wrong. Here's what God says about it. And along the way, we'll also learn something. I find I've learned things about Christian life and experience when I watch even secular movies that almost can't help but intersect with real truth. Now, one important caveat, something to keep firmly in mind. And it's been on my mind, especially this week, because I'm using two PG-13 movies this morning to illustrate my point. We need to continue and discern what is sin and what isn't. Because we don't want to sin. Please, don't leave here today, don't leave this series on movies saying or thinking, Pastor Todd says we need to watch every movie out there so we can use it to talk people about God. Okay, Paul cautions against that and things like that when he emphatically says that God's grace is not an excuse to sin all the more. Because make no mistake about it, we risk sin at least when we engage with and even when we simply watch certain movies. And that's because it's even ridiculous to suggest that we merely watch movies and that they pose no threat to deeply affecting and impacting us. And oh, they do. Did you know a movie's rock-bottom intent by design is not to entertain? Did you know? Alexander the Great is largely responsible for our movies today. In his Hellenistic worldview, he established and pushed theater, made it a cornerstone of culture, as a means of influencing popular thought and attitudes. And so at their creational basis, the purpose of theater, including today's movies now, their purpose at their core has always been to teach and to influence and to preach a particular worldview. That's why there's such a powerful cultural force. And so we need to continue to use great care and discernment in our choices of which movies we subject ourselves to. And here's a tough question, and I don't know that I know the answer. I can't give you a black and white answer, but here's the tough question. When does watching movies cross the line from useful resource to talk about God to engaging in sin? And that's a tough question, but it's a question, my friends, we need to continuously engage and wrestle with. One area. I'll give you one area of particular concern in choosing what movies to watch. And it's something that is just destroying people today in and out of the church. 
And that's when a movie shows explicit sexual situations. The power of those images, the allure of what the movies are teaching in those scenes is so overwhelmingly powerful and so thoroughly wrong almost all of the time. Whether it's objectifying women or sex, whether it's eroding God's very clear intention that his blessing of sex must only take place in the context of one man and one woman in marriage, or whether it's the temptation to commit sin first in our thought life as we watch and think about and feel about what we're seeing, and then the next temptation step to act out that lesson, the next opportunity we're in that situation, and to act out those movies preaching, if it feels good, do it. And watching explicit sexual situations and nudity in particular pose a serious threat. And by the way, regardless of age, profane language, extravagant violence in movies, other areas where we need to draw discerning lines. These things take a toll on our souls. They appeal to, they beckon, they call to those worst and darkest parts of our human nature that we're trying with God's help to sanctify, to control them, lest they become idols that control us. And so please, we need to continue to use great care and discernment in our choices of which movies we subject ourselves to. And you know, if the culture is talking about movies that we discern we have no business watching, Well, then maybe a better recourse is to read a review about what happens in the movie so we greatly lessen the risk that we somehow get caught up in reveling in the sinful situations played out live in the movies. One great discernment resource I'll give you. Parents, our our kids know they won't see a movie before Jill or I check this website. It's pluggedinonline.com. Go ahead and write it down. A marvelous discernment resource. You'll find there a breakdown of everything that happens in the movie And the reviewers who are excellent and very fair in their assessment will help you at least relate the movie to Christian worldview. I heartily recommend, not just for your kids, but for you, before seeing your next movie, before sending your kids in there, check out this website, please. I I don't think you'll regret it. You see, it is a very difficult thing being in the world and not of it. You know, we hear that, be in the world and not of it. And we say, oh, hey, that's a clever little saying. It's a bumper sticker. Put it on my car. We need to be in the world and not of it. Cool, I got it. And then off we go, skipping into the world. <laughs> Don't be careful. Yes, we definitely need to be in the world and, and knowing about what the world is talking about and knowing enough to, to have true empathy for people who are confused and broken and, and, and knowing what they find fascinating is part of being in the world. But, oh, be careful. Be careful because the world is not apathetic or neutral to us being in it. It wants us. Do you know? It's not just the army that wants you. The world wants you, and it will try its hardest and best to woo you. The world will aggressively pursue you to convince you that it's found the best path for living. And its path and worldview, it's one that often conflicts, at least, with God's path for his people. So be careful. 
in this one bit of extra advice, pretty sound advice actually because it's from Jesus, don't go off into the world alone. We need community, Christian community, when we seek to be in the world and not of it. You go off in there alone and it will eat you alive. Go with at least two, Jesus says, even to his disciples. So we can and we should, I'd even say we must, engage the world in and through those things it deems powerful and it thinks, whoa, like movies. And use them to whatever extent we can to point to God and to his truth. But as we go, we better be prepared and we best be wary. We don't go skipping in there alone. And that includes the world's movie theaters in some instances. In the world, but not of the world. You know, in the first century, Jews would flock as spectators into the Roman arena. Did you know? And I'm not talking about Jews that didn't take their faith seriously, although perhaps those folks flocked there as well for a different reason. But I'm talking about God-fearing, deeply religious, obedient Jews buying out whole sections of seats in the Roman arena. Now, why on earth would God-fearing people go to the Roman arena? You've probably seen enough movies to know or read enough history to know that some really nasty stuff took place in there. Hey, people fighting to the death for entertainment. You'd think that that'd be the last place that you'd find people who love God. And yet, to this day, for example, in Miletus, a site in Turkey where Paul says goodbye to those Ephesian elders, you can find seats in the ruins. I've seen them. I've sat in one. You can find seats in the ruins of the arena there with Jewish names etched into the stone. Season tickets they bought. Seriously, they bought season tickets to the Roman arena. What are they doing in that arena where there's such a disregard of human life? Here's the answer. The reason they went there the reason they encouraged everyone in their community to go and to buy up seats that they wanted to go there en masse, lots of them. The reason they went there was because at the end of those battles to the death, when one person was so wounded that he couldn't continue, the victor would have him pinned down by his neck with his sword raised. But before dealing the death blow, the victor would look up to whoever the highest ranking official was there in the arena that day, sometimes even Caesar himself, and pause. And Caesar or the official would look around to the crowd and the crowd would vote on whether the victor would kill off his defeated opponent or let him live. Thumbs up from the crowd, the wounded man would live. Thumbs down, he would die. And those Jews bought blocks of season tickets at an incredible price and spent all the time that they spent there so they could always vote thumbs up for life. The rabbis write, they would hide their eyes for the entire fighting match so they wouldn't see it. And then when the time came to vote, they would as a block all emphatically place their thumbs high in the air voting for life. See, now that's in the world, but not of it. So keep discerning, even as you look for opportunities movies may present to point people to God. Keep, we need to keep wrestling over how we, how can we be as effective as we possibly can be in the world, but not cross over that line where we get sucked into being of the world. It's not easy. 
And so, with all of that in mind, the first movie that I'd like to consider this morning with you is The Island. And as soon as I say The Island, I think Lost, but different island. Okay? Well before The Island and Lost, there was this movie, The Island. And you know, it's been interesting. All week long, I've had maybe, seriously, two dozen people in the 20s emailing me or telling me, whoo, just saw The Island. Point to God with that movie, huh? Good luck with that one on Sunday, Pastor. Yeah, see, some of you who didn't get a chance or were thinking the same thing maybe if you saw it. Well, we'll see what you think. To start, John Burns and Manda Cook have once again prepared a summary of the island for us. And this one, <laughs> no easy task because the plot takes several turns and twists, but they managed to do it extraordinary really, but you need to concentrate. Okay? You need to concentrate. All right? You ready? Got your romper room, I'm going to concentrate hats on? All right, let's watch the island. Here's everything you need to know about the island in 6 minutes, 30 seconds. The year is 2019. An ambiguous contamination has made the Earth uninhabitable, and the survivors of the contamination live in an isolated bunker safe from the contamination. The bunker's environment is carefully controlled and highly sterile. The survivors' movements are monitored by computers in the bunker staff. This is Lincoln 6 Echo. This is his friend Jordan 2 Delta, because in the future, everyone has a weird name. Life in the bunker seems good, and every week the residents participate in the lottery drawing. The lottery winner gets to go to the island. It's the ultimate prize. Everyone will win the lottery eventually. It's just a matter of time. Starkweather 2 Delta. Your time has come. You're moving out to the island. Starkweather 2 Delta here. And as you know, the biggest dream of my life just came true. I won the lottery. <laughs> Lucky. But Lincoln Six Echo is a unique resident who isn't satisfied to be complacent. An unexpected discovery ignites his questioning nature. I found something. What? A bug. A bug? A flying bug. Can I see it? I think it came in the ventilation shaft. I just have a feeling that something is wrong. That night, Jordan 2 Delta wins the island lottery. You're moving out to the island. I can't believe it. such sweet sorrow. Motivated by his curiosity, Lincoln releases the bug and follows it out of the compound. He discovers a new part of the facility. He spots the former lottery winner. He's not lounging on the beach. He's undergoing surgery while awake. (laughs) Creepy. Lincoln returns to his room. The next morning, he drags Jordan to Delta out of her room before she can be shipped to the island. They escape the compound, but before leaving, they make an accidental pit stop at the nursery. This is where new survivors come from. Very creepy. Lincoln and Jordan reach the outside. It's not contaminated, it's just Arizona. Lincoln and Jordan make a new friend who is an employee of the compound. He explains to them what is going on. You're not real. You're not like a real person, like me. You're clones. And why? The whole reason you exist is because everyone wants to live forever. It's the new American dream. 
and there's people out there that are rich enough to pay anything for it. Really very creepy. Back at the compound, the evil head executive conducts a tour of the facility for potential clients. Welcome to the next generation of science, the Agnet. And in compliance with the eugenics laws of 2015, all our Agnets are maintained in a persistent vegetative state. They never achieve consciousness. Liar. At the same time, a vigilante professional bounty hunter comes in to track down the escaped products. This guy, Mr. Lorong. Mr. Lorong hears the real scoop on the business model. Two of our products have escaped. Impressive, considering they're vegetative. Well, after several years of trial and error, we discovered that without consciousness, without human experience, motion, without life, the organs failed. With the help of their new friend, Lincoln and Jordan head for California to confront the original Lincoln. After a lengthy car chase orchestrated by Mr. Larong, Lincoln and Jordan reach the wealthy real Lincoln. He has a Scottish accent, so you can tell them apart. They plead with him to take them to the news station. Help us. All right. Let me just get my shoes, okay? He agrees, but since he's the kind of guy who'd pay $5 million for a spare pair of organs, it turns out he's lying. He calls the compound and tells them how to intercept them en route to the station. Commence additional car chase scene. Jordan stays behind. Lincoln and Scottish Lincoln are intercepted by Larong. Larong has been instructed to take no prisoners. Clone Lincoln adopts a Scottish accent to trick Larong. It works. I'm Tom Lincoln! What? No, I'm Tom Lincoln! He's lying! Shut up! Scottish Lincoln doesn't make it back home. Now assuming the identity of Scottish Lincoln, Lincoln learns that the company's new plan is to clear their inventory and start from scratch. Lincoln and Jordan hatch a plan. Under the pretense of having a new clone made for himself, Lincoln returns to the facility. Jordan intentionally gets caught by Larong, who transports her back to the facility. Together again, Jordan and Lincoln incite chaos in the compound and plan to save their unsuspecting fellow clones. They find an unlikely ally in Larong who is overcome with empathy for the clones. So when did killing become a business for you? I have discovered the holy grail of science, Mr. Laurent. I give life. The Agnates. They're simply tools, instruments. They have no souls. The possibilities are endless here. In two years' time, I will be able to cure children's leukemia. How many people on Earth can say that, Mr. Laurent? I guess just you and God. That's the answer you're looking for, isn't it? Touche, Mr. Larong. Jordan and Lincoln are successful at destroying the facility's central system. They save the other clones from impending extermination. The clones begin exiting the compound en masse. The desert landscape is dotted with white-clad clones. It's not quite paradise. It's only Arizona. But that seems to be okay with them. Hey, give John Amanda a hand. I'm tempted. Um, I'm tempted uh, to hire them or suggest they start a business for those of us who can't go see every movie. Just do that for me, boy. I'd save a lot of time. Yeah, I, I work with such talented people. Thanks, guys. That's awesome. Now, I can understand 
I can understand part of the feeling at least when, you know, folks came to me, mostly tongue-in-cheek, you know, hey, you know, good luck with that movie on Sunday. I, I can understand that feeling. This, this movie presents a different sort of challenge than last week's movie's examples of the blind side or even Avatar. The, the one-for-one correlation with the Christian story may be less clear in some ways, but in some ways maybe not less clear at all. For example... How can we miss the connection between the devil and the company head who wants to play God? And maybe that guy exposes our own tendency and our own arrogance sometime to want to take God's place, especially in life decisions, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But remember, we're looking for anything in a movie that everyone's talking about that can illustrate Christian worldview or truth, either in a good way or by contrast in a bad way. And I'll tell you, personally, I've seen very few movies that in one movie intersect so well with so many deeply important and profound issues relating to the Christian worldview, at least launching off points that relate to the Christian worldview. And this morning, I've only got time to emphasize two in particular with you. First, I love the longing that we see and feel in Lincoln, the movie's hero. And please, don't, don't miss the coincidence that the man's name is Lincoln and he's about freeing people from slavery, okay? There's no way a story writer could have that be a coincidence. But in his longing, in Lincoln's longing, there's a healthy restlessness in him, an inquisitiveness, a faith, and a hope even that there's something more to life. He's got a high sense of justice, a noble and pure sense of love and mercy. There's a purity and an innocence about him. Hmm. Faith, hope, justice, mercy, love, purity, innocence. Christians have anything to say about those bedrock Christian virtues? course we do. Now before I say a bit more about that, let's watch and feel with Lincoln a bit his sense of longing, his sense of, God, there's got to be something more. Let's watch. How does anyone survive? I mean, they keep finding people and bringing them here, but where do they come from? It's good that they find survivors. Why do you always question the good? You only think about the bad. I just have a feeling that something is wrong. James, do you ever get bored doing this? Doing what? This. I never really thought about it. I think about it a lot. About what? This boring job. I mean, what are we doing here anyway? Well, they say we're feeding the nutrient lines. We eat food. Food's got to have vitamins, right? Good for us. You don't ever wonder about anything? Where do these tubes go? You start there, and they go right there. What's it like where you live, in Sector 5? Come on, you're killing me with questions here. Now, come on, you got a really sweet deal here, you know, because you're, uh, you know, like special. Why? Why am I special? There's another question. What's troubling you, Lincoln? Well, it's... It's just... All right, Tuesday night is tofu night. And I'm asking myself, who decided that everyone here likes tofu in the first place? And what is tofu anyway? 
And why can't I have bacon? I line up every morning, and I'm not allowed any bacon for my breakfast. And uh, tell me, let's talk about all the white. Why is everyone wearing white all the time? It's impossible to keep clean. I'm walking around, I, get, I always get the gray stripe. I never get any color, and I hand it in to be cleaned, and, and someone cleans it and folds it neatly back in my drawer, but who? Who is that person? I don't know. I just, I want to know answers, and I, and, I, and I wish that there was more. More? Yeah, more than just waiting to go to the island. There's a lot of different directions we could go with that, but I'll go in this one. And this one, especially if you're Christian, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Lincoln's longing for more, I think, is a stellar example of how we're to live our Christian lives in this way. Lincoln is not content with living his very comfortable life with the guarantee that he'll get to the island someday. If he were a Christian, he would never be accused of struggling with complacent Christianity, which is an oxymoron, by the way, no such thing. How many of us, I know I do, fight passive satisfaction with our own secure position before God, satisfied with the guarantee of heaven one day to the point of relaxing urgency of our call to be witnesses of Jesus in the world. It's tempting, isn't it, to rest on those however godly laurels of grace and to allow grace to lessen our drive and focus to love others who are confused and lost and don't yet know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lincoln's yearning and his refusal to be content with his decent lot in life and the guarantee of the island one day isn't enough for him. And our own thrill as Christians of knowing the Lord shouldn't replace our eagerness and enthusiasm to strive for more, for justice, for mercy, for love, as Lincoln does. God's grace should energize our enthusiasm and eagerness to shine God's love everywhere and make a real kingdom of God difference as we witness what it is in and around the world and those in it. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're searching, or if you're here for whatever reason, if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know, Lincoln's longing reminds me, too, of that God-shaped vacuum, that God-shaped hole that he puts in each person made in his image, which is every person, whether they know it or not. Lincoln's longing is emblematic of all the searching the world is doing for truth. And my friends, God has given us the knowledge of what truth is. And he asks us to share it with the others in love. So if you're searching for something today, and like Lincoln, you don't know quite what it is. If you're restless, if you find yourself thinking often, hey, something's just not right with the world, or the answers it offers. If you're searching yet, but you don't quite know what you're searching for, then let me name it for you. 
You are, whether or not you know it yet, you are searching for Jesus. You're searching for God. You're searching for God's love in and through Christ Jesus. And what's more, he's searching for you and he has been searching for you, pursuing you since the day you were born. And if that's you this morning, if you're searching for something and you haven't yet found Jesus, I invite you, I challenge you even, check him out, won't you? If you'd, li- if you'd like, come see me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about him and to hear your story of your search. i tell you something. I promise you, you will never truly find what you're looking for until you find him. Or allow him to find you. You won't. Lincoln's longing reminds me not to settle for complacent Christianity in my own walk before the Lord. And his longing reminds me that God has placed in everyone this God-sized vacuum that he and he alone can truly and completely and fully fill. Second, and this, in my opinion, is... If there's one incredible strength in this movie, this is it. And and this one's pretty heavy. This movie cherishes life. It holds up life as its highest value, fights for life, embraces life, even the life of a mere clone, even the oppressed, especially the oppressed. And oh, that song sings from this story. You see this movie embrace life even in the tender way Lincoln handles the flying bug he finds. Bugs we often spray or swat or squash. And I challenge anyone to tell me you're not moved at all if you truly let this story take you and engage you. How could anyone not be dismayed if not sickened as the movie reveals these clones being treated as products, things, rather than people. Let's watch a bit more. We've predicated our entire system on predictability. Six Echo has displayed the one trait that undermines it. Human curiosity. So... We're now facing four generations with the potential for defiant behavior. Uh, What are you suggesting? A recall. Wait, you mean dispose of over $200 million worth of product? Yes. Great. to this issue of cherishing life only in a very different way. And here's the sports movie I promised you last week, men, only it's not really about sports. It's about the value of life. 
And the Oscars loved this boxing movie, and the movie is Million Dollar Baby. And the story is about a young woman who makes it big as a boxer. And then during one match, she falls and breaks her neck on a stool in the corner of the ring, and she's paralyzed. She's still in her right mind, as sharp as ever, but understandably devastated, she begs her trainer, her rabbi, really, her coach, her lifelong coach, Clint Eastwood, begs him to end her life because she doesn't see any further worth in living. And so in the movie's climactic scene, the scene, the entire picture points to and sets up and builds toward, her trainer shows up at her hospital bed in the middle of the night with his little black bag. Let's watch. Disconnect your air machine, and you're going to go to sleep. And I'll give you a shot, and you'll stay asleep. First saw, when I first saw this movie in the theater, I had to fight the urge literally to stand up and yell, No! No! God, up until that point, I just enjoyed the movie so immensely, this fighter, this per- And then Hollywood did this. Far from helping her her trainer, who'd become, had come to love her like a father, let her down. Someone tell her. 
someone. She has immense and infinite value in living. That life is God's greatest gift. Someone tell her of the comfort and encouragement she has to offer to countless kids among her fans who might also suffer from this condition. Someone tell her how her fame and fortune could be used to bring love and hope to countless people. Someone tell this amazing young fighter about Jesus. Someone step up. Where are you, Clint? Challenger. Challenge this tough-minded boxer that she's now in the fight of her life. And she can do it with God's help. For God's sake, don't tell her you're right. You're better off dead. I've rarely felt as sick to my stomach as I did walking out of the theater that night. It tears in my eyes. And one of the reasons, part of the reasons for that sick feeling and tears, and it, it, it's right here for me again this morning from watching that clip. It's been a few years since I've watched it even is that what that movie is selling in our culture, people are buying. The message of that movie is not one that cherishes life, all life. It's one that evaluates it and makes quality of life decisions it has no business of making. Instead, the movie preaches that if you're paralyzed, life isn't worth living. It makes a quality of life evaluation that makes Dr. Kevorkian's message look trivial by comparison. And the movie cleverly, expertly, with great emotion, with the music twinkling and swelling and moving us, urges us with the best production Hollywood has to offer that this is the best answer and the right thing to do. No! And now, of course... There are times when ending someone's life is the greater good, but not here, not even close. She's still in her right mind, for heaven's sake, with years ahead of her. There is no book that cherishes life more than this one, the Bible. And there is no God that cherishes life more than our God. From Genesis to Revelation, our God is about life He cherishes it, he creates it, he fights for it, he is life. Life is his greatest gift. And you say salvation in Christ is his greatest gift. Okay, good point. But before there can be salvation, there needs to be something to save. And that something is life. And any culture better be very, 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 very careful in evaluating whether a particular quality of life is worth cherishing, especially a culture built on man as the measure of all things. Because a culture that doesn't cherish life as God does will eventually, step by step, systematically, over time, evaluate the weak or the imperfect or the elderly or the disabled or the poor or the unborn as not worth cherishing. (laughs) In the island, I can't watch the scene where those alive and growing clones and those bags of fluid are discarded. I can't watch that scene without immediately wrestling with abortion. And in Million Dollar Baby, if that young woman in her right mind is truly better off dead in the estimation of that storyteller, 
something, what are the elderly? What are the disabled? What are those who don't measure up to a humanistic standard? What chance have they had? Those first century Jews had it right. God's people are to be the people that cherish life. Thumbs up for life. We're to recognize and appreciate and fight for and never take for granted God's most amazing gift of being alive. It's one of our highest values and principles. Life so precious to God that he sacrificed his own son. And his own son, who the night before he died, loved living and loved life that he begged his dad to find another way. Life is so precious to God, he gave his own son life so that everyone could live forever. Life is that priceless and it needs to be protected and cherished and not rationalized away with these silly definition of what's a person, what's not a person, what's a human, what's not a person. All life, cherish it, nurture it, grow it. Are you oh, it's amazing and it's God's gift. And both the island and the million-dollar baby in a much different way remind me that we are to cherish life. And I think these movies offer an, offer an opportunity for us to help others feel that a bit more. Maybe feel it more deeply using their iron of culture than perhaps they feel if I simply read Psalm 139, which they don't respect yet, about God fashioning us in our wombs. Now, one thing more, and then I need to let you go. Whenever I emphasize God's love of life in the context of abortion in particular, I'm always deeply concerned that I run over someone listening who may have had one. And if that's you this morning, please hear from my heart what I say next. God still cherishes you, and he always will. I do not pretend to stand up here in judgment over anyone. I have no right or standing to do that, and I don't want to. At one time you made that decision, then please know from the bottom of my heart, I don't think anything less of you. I don't love you any less, and I know God doesn't either. He still cherishes you, and he always will. And by the way, perhaps this is also some comfort. I know it comforts me. Any life that's been aborted isn't gone. They're all safe and secure, and even today, dancing with God in his house. Waiting to meet us all someday, I have no doubt. Won't that be? There'll be some amazing reunions one day, yeah? Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Tears of joy. (laughs) Movies can be used to illustrate and talk about Christian worldview. Everybody's already talking about it. Add your two cents. All of this this morning, and I know I've given you a lot to think about and wrestle with, and there's even so much more from these two movies. All of it this morning coming out of, or at least triggered by, two secular movies that can't help but intersect the truth of God in His Word.
Maybe you'll have the opportunity to use movies to engage others about God, at least as I've tried to do with you this morning. I pray he gives you that opportunity. Let's pray. Father of heaven, thank you for reminding us today, even through these two movies, that we're not to be complacent with the grace that you've given us. Thanks for encouraging us that there isn't anyone that you don't create in them, given that you've created them in your image, that isn't at some level, whether they know it or not, searching. Thanks for, uh, thanks for giving us the answer. Thanks, as we've all sung already together this morning, that we've seen the light and have the light. And, oh, Father, guard us from arrogance in knowing the answer. Humble us that it was nothing we did to deserve it, but your sheer grace that shares it with us. And spur us through that grace. Give us a desperation, a longing like Lincoln Echo Sixes to share it with others so that they too may know more about who you are and your love. Father, help us as Christians. Help us as a nation to stand for and to cherish life in whatever form. Help us in that way to witness who you are, this great big God who authored life, who is life, and who offers as the pinnacle through his Son eternal life. Father, we love you, and we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction, his good words? And then I'll let you out under that incredibly blue sky, if it's still blue. It's blocked off. To enjoy Father's Day. This one from the Apostle Paul, but quoting the book of Numbers of all things. You'll recognize it, many of you, I'm sure. The The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, his shalom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace. Praise God.